Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Fran Canary, a 23-year veteran at the Vanguard Group, where he's led the teams that spearhead Vanguard's research into new products. Fran helped Vanguard enter the direct advice business, developed Vanguard's Advisor Alpha concept, started its investment strategy group, and most recently has headed Vanguard's latest initiative, Investing in Private Equity. Our conversation covers an overview of Vanguard's business, Fran's roles over a quarter century at the firm, behavioral coaching, and the latest asset class foray. 
We discuss the research process that led to the introduction of private equity, potential scale across institutional and retail clients, timing of the decision, fees, and manager selection. We then close discussing Vanguard's cooperative ownership model, compensation, and the future of index funds. When the industry's leading index fund manager, known for low-cost investing, steps into high-cost private equity after years of research, those calling for the abandonment of active management should take notice. As you'll soon hear, like all other practitioners of active management, Fran and Vanguard preach outcomes over costs. Please enjoy my conversation with Fran Canary. Fran, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with your entrance to Vanguard 20-something years ago. What did Vanguard look like back then? Vanguard back then, Ted, in many ways, looked more similar than different. Obviously, its culture and its mission has always been laser-focused on delivering superior investment outcomes. And we really tried to lean into an investor population who often lacked access to a world-class asset manager. So we were serving the smaller investor who may have not been able to get access to world-class managers, and we had highly aligned incentives. It's so weird. I remember walking onto the campus for the first time like it was yesterday. For me, it was like visiting a national or historic monument. The campus is a beautiful college-like setting, and here I am getting out of my car walking in, walking up to the building where my office was going to be on the same floor with investment icons like Jack Bogle, Jack Brennan, Gus Sauter, and Tim Buckley, to name a few. So for me, it was like a career dream come true. The obvious differences, Ted, is the growth of the firm. So in the last 23 years since I arrived, we had 300 plus billion when I got there. Today, we're close to $6 trillion. So growth has been exponential, but growth was never an objective of the firm. It was really an outcome of serving investors well. We felt if we delivered on investment performance and client service, investors would vote with their feet. It's a pretty smart population, and they're going to go to where they're well served. The last thing I would say, Ted, is Vanguard has always been on the cutting edge of innovation. As we're all now working from home, or many of us working from home with Zoom and other technology, Vanguard, when I arrived all the way back in 1997, was already fully virtual with its asset owners. We weren't using Zoom and other technology advancements, but we were virtual by serving our asset owners via the telephone. And so I just think as an innovator, Vanguard creating the first index mutual fund, no load active mandates, but also our virtual footprint was probably 20, 25 years ahead of its time. So that's the primary similarities and differences, Ted, to when I first arrived at Vanguard to where we are today. Why don't you give an overview of what Vanguard is today? I think sometimes perception and the media can really take a firm's brand, if you will, in a different direction. But a lot of people don't know, but Vanguard started as an actively managed firm first investment was an active offer. Shortly thereafter, indexing did come and we were a big proponent of indexing. Today, we are actually one of the world's largest index ETF, target retirement fund managers. 
We're also one of the largest fee for advisory service, both in the OCIO space and in the high net worth space. But we remain one of the largest active managers, both on the public equity side and the public fixed income side. Why don't we walk through the numbers of each of those? It's obviously a large scale operation, but why don't you break it down between where are the indexed assets, where are the active assets, the OCIO assets, and so forth? Yeah, so our advice offer, we're mostly still an asset management firm. Our advice, both on the OCIO space and on the high net worth space, is growing rapidly. $50 plus billion in the OCIO space, close to $200 billion on the retail advice space, close to $2 trillion in active management, both on the money market side public fixed income side and public equity side. So if you do the math, then it's probably closer to $4 trillion on the indexing side, which would be ETFs and traditional mutual funds. So huge active management operation, huge index fund operation. Where did you start in your path over these 20 years at Vanguard? Being there 20 years in a large organization, I've been very, very lucky to have three roles in 23 years, and they've all been complete startups, which to my cup of tea is very fascinating and what I love, starting something new. So I was hired to actually help start our advice initiative, not from the business side, but from the investment side. So I was the person who was charged with developing what the asset allocation would be, what the portfolio construction would look like, what the wealth planning and financial planning value add would be. So I was on the investment side, helping the business side launch the advice offer back in 1997. And then from there? Yeah. So what Vanguard uh, has a history of doing, I think it's really smart. We will embed a lot of the professionals in the business as it incubates and starts. So my role was investment management in the advisory business from 1997 to 2001. But it became pretty clear at the time, most of my work was writing research on the role of international, how you want to rebalance, how much large cap, small cap, active, passive. I remember my first couple of years there, we would have the dial floppy disks that we would mail clients. It's hard to believe just how quickly technology has changed. So the internet gave us a great avenue to post communication and education, let's say the role of international or the role of rebalancing. So my role of investment allocation, portfolio construction, advisors alpha, which was in the business, then became a corporate initiative. So I just lifted my team out of advice and into the investment management group. And I started a group called Investment Strategy Group at Vanguard in 2001, and that still exists today. And so what is the objective of that group? The objective of that group, uh, about 70 folks, mostly PhD CFAs, commenting on capital market research, so what our economic outlook, what the capital market outlook is, and then underneath of that, what does Vanguard think about portfolio construction, asset allocation, behavioral finance. I mentioned Advisors Alpha, the role of advice in a portfolio, a lot of behavioral coaching work that we do in that group. So it's it's really what we would want to tell all of our investors at Vanguard, what we think is happening in the markets, 
and how they may construct a portfolio to be successful. So a lot of pieces that are so different than what the common perception of Vanguard might be. Let's start with outlooks on markets. How do you use the research that this team generates? Joe Davis, who's our chief economist, and he and his team do a great job. Joe and I were peers and worked very close together 15 years before I took this private equity role. His work and his teamwork feed into our actively managed fixed income side. So they are an input to the decisions made in our fixed income team. Most of our assets on fixed income are actively managed. And so whether they're positioning something a little short or a little long in duration, what type of credit appetite they may want to have from a credit perspective. Uh, So that does feed into that work. But also it it helps us reassure clients, keep the stay the course message in a lot of cases, and just putting out information about where the market stands, where valuation stands. We see it as an effective tool to keep investors doing well. You mentioned the term behavioral coaching. Sounds intriguing. So what have you been doing with that? When I joined Vanguard to help start advice, the value proposition was a little tricky because the traditional value proposition of fee for advice is hire me and I'll outperform the portfolio, right? That was the, so at Vanguard, our advice offer was, you know, more around a service model. We weren't going to do tactical asset allocation. We weren't doing market timing. So the the question became really quickly, well, if you're going to develop a policy portfolio, you're going to rebalance to it. Why am I paying you? And the real area that we found, Ted, is that most investors, investing is emotional. And so when you have a 35% drawdown like we saw in the spring or a 55% drawdown like we saw in GFC, it sounds real easy to rebalance a portfolio. It's kind of real easy to go out and exercise. But we know that if you actually work with an exercise coach or a diet coach, you actually have better performance. It's tricky to take, let's say, a $2 million portfolio, a million in stocks, a million in bonds. They just lost 500,000 in stocks. And you're asking them to sell 250,000 of their bonds to put it in stocks. And so we created a whole narrative around behavioral coaching known as Advisors Alpha. And that was really the value advice brings, even if it's not about market timing or security selection, but around this behavioral coaching. And we've quantified that value at somewhere around 300 basis points. So we really believe in the value of advice at Vanguard. It's really, as I mentioned, I joined to help start advice. It is now core to what Vanguard does, both in the OCIO space and in the high net worth retail space. How do you quantify 300 basis points of behavioral alpha? So the 300 is comprehensive. The behavioral coaching part is about two of the 300. We use the technique that some of the audience may be familiar with. Morningstar does the behavioral gap. We have our own that I've been doing since I got to Vanguard. We just measure the IRR, which is the internal rate of return, which that is actually the investor's return. And we compare that to the time-weighted return, right? I try to tell everyone you cannot eat or spend or live off of time-weighted return. So time-weighted return measures the index, so the S&P 500, or let's say Vanguard Prime Cap Fund, that is the return the manager would derive if there were no cash flows in or out. But that's not what investors get. Investors, timing of their cash flow, in and out, potentially buying near the peak, selling near the bottom, they have this gap, and it's called the behavioral gap. 
that has averaged about 2% a year. Now, it's not going to add it in every year. It's very episodic. So you see real destruction or, or gaps, let's say, run up to the tech bubble in 1998, 1999. Believe it or not, it's, it's one of the stats I'm most curious about. You had five years of stock market returns above 20%. We had never seen that before. But in 1999, you had negative bond flows. If investors were rebalancing, you would have seen negative flows into stocks into bonds. And not only that, but about 100% of the cash flow in 99 went to technology, media, telecom, you know, the, the big growth stocks of its time. And so it's not just in bear markets where investors have a hard time investing. It's also at the extremes. And so we see that time and time again, working with an advisor, whether it be Vanguard or another advisor who really has the discipline to stay the course, we feel the advice pays for itself. As you evolved from doing this as advisory with retail, as you said, towards the institutional market and OCIO, I'm curious what you learned about the similarities and differences with the different client base. Yeah, and it's hard to generalize, so I'll take a step back from that. But there is this idea that maybe the retail money may not be as sophisticated as, let's say, an endowment or foundation or investment committee. I sit on a couple of committees. I'm sure you do as well, Ted, and most of your listeners will know. Investment committees are not necessarily all made up of investment professionals, which is a good thing. You want diversity of thought. You want diversity of experience. But it is the assets, a lot of times, people serving on the committee. But we see the same behavior, if not worse behavior in some of the investment committees. When you look at higher fire decisions, there's a number of higher fire decisions out there for active managers where you fire the incumbent because he has a you know significantly bad three, five-year return. You hire the new manager based on good past performance. And you see that if you track that on a go-forward basis, the majority of time, the manager you fired outperforms the manager you hired. We see investment policies changing all the time to recency bias. And so the investment committees out there, we also believe could really benefit from help. And that's why you see the OCIO business growing quite rapidly. So the core part of your experience then from 2001 till you know the last few years, I guess, have been in this area. And that's the second module. And we connected really in and around this next step, this third step of your path at Vanguard. So why don't you dive into the whole thought process of private equity and introducing that into portfolios? Yeah. So in addition to Behavioral Finance Advisors Alpha, which we were just talking about, my title was Global Head of Portfolio Construction for 15 years. And coming out of that, so we would think about, we did a ton of research on liquid alternatives, hedge funds, all the different asset classes. We kept coming back to private equity as an area that we felt was enduring, that could improve our client outcomes. And so in that research, we're always trying to stretch ourselves. And the number one goal at Vanguard is every investment we think needs to be enduring. We think that we can be a leader in the space and we think it has to improve client outcomes. And so we kept coming back to private equity as an area where we have been researching for many, many years, me and my team. And then the stars aligned within the last 18 months where we actually moved forward from a research initiative 
to thinking about what it could look like in our client portfolios to doing a manager search process. We opened the conversation, Ted, with Vanguard being one of the largest active managers. We do that two ways. We have internal investment management where we they're Vanguard employees, which run a lot of our active funds, but we're also a manager of managers. We have a portfolio review department that does manager and oversight where we will partner with the world's greatest asset managers. And some examples would be Wellington, Bailey Gifford, PrimeCap. So we started a manager search process in private equity. And given Vanguard's size, its brand, what we stand for, we were able to get meetings with the world's who's who of private equity managers. And so we ended up canvassing the landscape over about a year. We met with about a dozen of those managers, did on-site visits. And then we ended up deciding to go to market with HarborVest, which many of your audience are probably familiar with. One of the largest, the most respected manager of manager, private equity access funds that are out there. Been in business for 30 plus years. Really, really deep team. And so we're very, very happy that we launched that on February 5th, three weeks before the work from home and the unfortunate events of COVID. But in our first year, it's gone quite well. So let's circle back to the multi-year research process leading up to the manager search. What kind of research were you doing to get to the point where you felt you were ready to incorporate private equity? Yeah, we we really did an extensive research, not just on the managers, but the couple options you could have would, should we build this on our own, right? You could go direct to the holding companies and take direct interest as opposed to using a general partner. The other is you could go right to a big direct GP as opposed to working with an access fund that themselves source what we would say is the world's greatest GPs. And there's trade-offs to all. There's not, a, there's not a right or wrong answer to this. Different organizations will do it differently. So the first step was we decided that what really matters here is access to the top GPs. You can clearly see the dispersion of returns in private equity are significant. And a lot of the top GPs are oversubscribed and full and not taking on new clients. So as a new entrant, if we were to going to do this on our own, my team is a team of seven folks. So HarborVest is a team of 500 plus folks that have been doing this for close to 40 years. So we would not have the relationships or the ability to do this internally at this time. We could have gone with a direct GP, but then you really lose some of the diversity and the diversification of manager managers. There are a lot of specialties in this area. There's all different flavors of private equity. And so in our due diligence, we were clear that we wanted to work with a world-class access fund that would bring us, let's say, 30 to 40 of the world's greatest GPs and then allow us to do annual vintages, right? So it's not the top GPs don't come to market every year. And so the ability to have a turnkey diversified portfolio led us to want to work with an access fund like HarborVest. Then we were able to go compare the world's greatest access funds out there and HarborVest made that cut for us. As you started to do that manager search, I'm curious about what was the inflection point that got you to say, okay, now we're ready to 
dive into this as opposed to observing and looking at it in what's been you know a decade or two of really great results? I wrote our first research paper in my investment strategy role as head of portfolio construction on the role of private equity 15 years prior. It all got down to, did we believe we were going to be able to access a top quartile sourcing manager? Because the results are pretty clear. If you're going to get median or average returns, not an area where you want to perform. We all know the Nakubo databases and looking at the largest endowments and foundations versus the mids and the smalls, private equity and hedge funds in general have not worked out really well for those below the top 10% AUM mandates. And so it really is an access issue. I think what gave us a lot of reasons to move forward is just the significance of the top players wanting to have meetings with us and actually give us pretty decent terms for our investors to make sure that the outcomes were generated for positive returns for our clients. One of the head scratchers when you look at the scale of Vanguard and the notion, as you said, that a lot of the top sponsors have capacity constraints is how do you think about rolling this out in such a way that down the road you could have very, very substantial scale? I would say two things that made us very attractive. The first is we are really a believer in stay the course rebalancing. And so if you look at fund flows of private equity, they are cyclical with the market. They are tied to the market. You see what happened in 08, 09. You even see what happened in the first quarter of 2020. The money may disappear when the sourcing uh, private equity needs it the most. So I think those who know our OCIO business and our retail advice business and our aspirations and the growth of those businesses, we were very attractive to the top private equity because our cash flow will be contrarian and counter-cyclical to their traditional cash flow model. So we are actually a stabilizing force for those private equity managers. The second area is when we started with active management at Vanguard way back when, we had one manager, Wellington. We now have close to 30. So HarborVest is where we are going to market with today. They are very, very interested in where their top line capacity is. They study capacity very carefully. Most of the fees, as you know, Ted, and the audience will know, is performance or carry fee. So they do not want to give away hot money or take on money that they don't feel they can perform. So we know we have a certain runway with them. It's a pretty long runway, though. They feel very comfortable that they can meet at least our two to five year aggressive source for this money. And then we'll see what what happens from there if, if we have to hire a new manager. But we feel very good with our relationship with them, at least for the short and intermediate. So how does the capital flow from your businesses, say, into this relationship in the sense that if the advisory businesses, OCIO businesses are pretty substantial, say $250, $250 billion, do you just flip a switch and say, okay, we want 1% in private equity. We're putting $2.5 billion to work this year. If we were to just use some numbers, if we were to say that a institutional client might have 20 to 30% of their equity. We see this as an equity surrogate and as correlation. So let's just say of that 300 billion that you used, let's say 60% of that is in equity. So that would be $180 billion. And let's say that our 
long run aspiration is to get the majority of the clients into that at 20 to 30 percent of private equity. You can quickly see that 180 would be 36 billion dollars. But again, we don't feel we're going to flip a switch and all the clients are going to get there tomorrow. Not only that, there's a staging of how you enter private equity. You, you want vintage diversification, so it's not going to happen day one. There will be a glide path, if you will, to enter into the space. So we would see the numbers being very accommodative towards HarborVest and to the private equity industry over a glide path of three to five years. And so if you look out, say, five years and you've gotten there, what do you think the prospects are of extending that component of allocation to the retail base? That's been our long-run aspiration. If you read the press release that we put out, we're starting in the OCIO. We're starting in the QP on the high net worth side. But our long-run aspiration is to democratize this asset class. We're all trying to figure out how to make sure that it does not harm clients. And those are real concerns. But at the end of the day, right now, wealth and income are the qualifying gates to get into private equity. There's been a lot of talk in the regulatory channel. Wouldn't it be more prudent if it is advised by a professional allocator who has expertise in portfolio construction and rebalancing? Would not a school teacher or a nurse or a retail client in a target retirement fund, let's think about a target retirement fund, 50-year horizon, multi-asset class, single nav, rebalanced, with return premiums that could be somewhere two to 400 basis points over public markets, I would argue that those investors are the investors who need private equity the most. The average day investor who is saving for retirement or saving for college with a long duration, if it is indeed packaged with a multi-asset class manager like Vanguard in a wrapper of target retirement or advice, we think that that would be a prudent way for regulatory change. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. How do you think about the question of why now when at least in the short term, even though understanding this is a long-term proposition, valuations have never been higher. And it seems like a funny time to say, oh, now we're going to enter this area in space. Yeah, we've never really felt that markets have an expiration date on them. It's hard to time the markets. 
maybe I'll start with the second part of that question. So that's one we would have said, we could have said why now four years ago when most people were calling the market overvalued in 2016 and 2017, and here we are in 2020. So this is one of the longest and largest bull markets of all time. So we're not really market timers in that sense. We're doing this for the next 50 to 100 years. But behind that, I said earlier, we would fund this from public equity. So if a client is 60-40 stock bond, we would not take this from the 40%. So let's just do a little mental math. If it's 60-40 stock bond, and we think that private equity would be 20 of the 60, you would then be taking your 60 of public equity down to 48. Let's hypothetically say it is a overvalued market. Why now? We're actually lowering public equity, putting it in with private equity. So we don't see the beta or drawdown risk being that different, number one. So that would be part of the question. The other part is private equity just keeps growing relative to public markets. And so we've always wanted to be market aware from a market cap weighting. So an asset class that's five, six, seven percent. But as the asset class keeps growing, we all know public equity has been shrinking, right? We felt it continued to be a larger and larger gap for our investors. And then the last thing I would say, generationally, where we are with fixed income. So throughout most of history, fixed income has had a return of four, four and a half, five percent. Most endowments and foundations and high net worth families have a real return target of, let's say, three, four, five percent. You certainly don't want to be investing and having negative real returns. And with money markets sitting at zero, I looked at the 10 year hovering somewhere between 70 and 100 basis points for the last year. You're almost locking in a negative real return in fixed income. Now, I'm not saying that people should replace private equity with fixed income, but if you were 60-40 and the 40 is getting you one, I just don't know where returns are going to come from. And so if private equity can deliver two forms of return, one in the illiquidity premium, and we can debate what that is going forward, and then some manager skill or manager selection, we feel confident that this private equity offer will outperform public equity whether it's two, three, four, five hundred basis points, all of that is going to matter if investors are getting one to one and a half percent on their fixed income. The other real question about this area has been the costs of doing business and fees. And when someone from the outside looks at Vanguard as synonymous with low fee and private equity synonymous with high fee, and now you're working with a manager of managers, which is another layer of fees. How did you bring that together in a proposition that was consistent with what you tried to deliver to your client base? Yeah, it kind of gets to maybe the misnomer on Vanguard. So Vanguard has been trying to lower fees, but it's not always about the lowest fee. And so we do actually have some public active offers that are 60, 70, 80 basis points. We've always believed in what we've tried to do is create net outcomes for clients. And what that means is, I always use the example of taxes because clients kind of get taxes. If if I were to offer you, Ted, a $1,000 bonus, more than you were expecting, but your tax cost or your cost on that would be the federal government taking $300 or 30% of that, would you turn it down because it had high cost? Hopefully your answer will be no, I'm net, net $700 higher. 
So Vanguard, while it's known in this world of low cost, we've always been about high client outcomes. And so what the costs are, let's say, to run an emerging market active equity fund versus an index fund, there's going to be a cost premium. And so same thing in private investments and private equity. There is a cost premium over public equity. The question is, should I forego that for our investors if we believe, even though it has higher fees, the net outcomes after all fees are still, let's say, two to four to 500 basis points above public equity, that's a trade-off I would take every time. How have you gone about the process of trying to get the fees down? We really wanted to make sure we had the world-class greatest manager, so we didn't go into market trying to strong-arm anyone on fees. As I mentioned, we did a full manager evaluation. We actually, of our finalists, HarborVest was not the lowest. Gets back to my idea of what you really want is value and outcomes. It's probably a cruel analogy, but it actually tends to stick with the audience. Do you want to have or eat free sushi? Sushi is a meal I probably would want to pay a premium for because the next day, the free sushi may not feel all that free. So there are areas where you do want to pay a premium for within private equity. However, what Vanguard has been really great at is pooling small or smaller mandates to give them sovereign wealth type condition. So if Ted, you and I and our family members wanted to come into HarborVest and we wanted to place a million or two each, the terms we would get would not, but the private equity managers see Vanguard at $6 trillion. They go through the mental math that you and I just did on our OCIO business, what might happen with target retirement funds. So they don't see a $2 million family or a $25 million endowment. And so they price it very much like they would price a sovereign wealth fund. And so we're able to take our 30 million clients at Vanguard and $6 trillion. And without saying a word, the price comes in at a very reasonable level that we are now getting terms and conditions, what would be a several billion dollar mandate when the end investor is only placing a few million dollars in it. What does that pricing ultimately look like to the end investor at Vanguard? So as you know, private placements, we really can't disclose all the fees. I have to make sure the client's qualified. I have to verify qualification. All I would say is that the majority of the fee is in the carry, meaning that there is alignment of incentives for the audience. Most private equity has a carry threshold. So let's use the number 8% meaning that there would be no performance fee or carry until the total return is above 8%. We feel that's highly aligned. We feel that that is probably above most episodes of public equity. And so in that arena, clients are not all that caring about paying high fees because they know they actually hit some kind of bogey. The management fee is not all that penal. Most of the fee is made up in the performance fee. And then structurally, have you created your own individual entities alongside HarborVest? No, right now we are using HarborVest. They inside are using 30 to 40 GPs, which will then have, let's say, six to 700 individual operating companies, globally diversified, stage diversified. 
primary, secondaries, and direct. And they are really the manager of the asset. We are the distributor through our OCIO business. And then in 2021, through our high net worth advised business and our high net worth direct business. As you put on your portfolio construction hat, how have you thought about the different aspects of private equity is one aspect you could think about infrastructure investing and venture capital and real estate. What are the other asset classes that you've considered and not yet put into portfolios? All of those that you mentioned, we have done research on infrastructure, private credit. And right now, we, as I mentioned, we will enter a space if we believe there's an enduring investment case that we believe that it has 50, 100, 200 year runway of still being an enduring investment case, and that it also has some size to it, right? So in the private space, private equity is by far the largest relative if you look at private real estate or infrastructure or debt. And so we also think about what is the market cap or what is the opportunity set? So it, it made a lot of sense for two reasons. Given the size of private equity, its growth relative to public equity, its size relative to the other private investment universe, and then lastly, the returns and diversification it could give our investors. So without giving away the next announcement, where do you think you are closer than other asset classes for introducing next into portfolios? I would say my primary focus is would be if I had a choice is to further democratize private equity beyond the QP, so to accredited investor or maybe within a bundled target retirement fund, then let's say us trying to come out with an infrastructure fund or a private debt fund. We'll continue to examine those. Maybe one of those comes before our ability to further democratize private equity. But given the size of private equity and actually what we think it can do for investor outcomes, a lot of our energy is going to try to be shifting, working with regulators to try to democratize the access to the asset class. How would you think about what hesitation there might be even at this point or alongside private equity in introducing private credit? When you start thinking about these hybrid asset classes that have a little equity beta, a little bond beta it can really cause some challenges to your asset allocation process. Like where would private credit or high yield sit? Do you break it and say it's 60% equity and 40% bonds? And then how do you rebalance it? So private equity is a clear equity beta. No one would call it a hybrid asset class. And so private credit is that hybrid asset class. We'll continue to examine and look at, but I don't see it coming in the near term. I'd love to hear more about the manager selection team and process. When we started private equity, I moved to a group at Vanguard called Portfolio Review Group. And so that group is about 80 individuals global. And we have a deep manager oversight team that does due diligence and forensics on people. This is at the end of the day, it's a people business. So we really want to know the people part of the business, the philosophy, the process of the management, succession planning, diversity and inclusion of the team, ESG. So we're looking at all of those factors and we've been really doing a good job over the last 35 plus years of evaluating and doing due diligence on these managers. 
which has resulted in Vanguard, its active franchise has outperformed close to 90% of our peers on the active side. If you look at the alpha that's created on our equity side, it's ranged between 50 and 100 basis points when you put all of our active funds together. So we've done quite well. We followed that playbook that we've been using on the public side for our private side. Deep dive on the people, the organization, the process that they use, what is their active edge? Do we believe their active edge is enduring? And that all led us back to HarborVest. This active management outperformance, let's just start on the public side. How much of it is the notion that there are active manager alpha gross returns and the fees are lower than, say, other active management fees? Yeah, I know one of your questions that you ask all your guests is your investment pet peeves, and maybe I'll answer that one now. My one, my investment pet peeves is that really people fail to understand zero-sum game. Bill Sharp came out with zero-sum game. It's, it's mathematical proof, and that is that for every buyer, there's a seller, right? So there's a counterparty on every side. But what never gets discussed in that zero-sum game, and what is my pet peeve, is that someone is on the right side of the distribution. Just like there are bad active managers, someone by mathematical fact is going to be in the top quartile. If you have to believe you have access, you have due diligence, you have selection, and when you put all that together, whether you can do it on your own if you're an endowment and foundation or a high net worth family, or you work with a manager or manager like Vanguard who has 40 years of experience doing this, we believe it tips your odds. And if you can actually, with confidence and conviction, let's say get between the 65th and the 80th percent of manager talent, gross, let's go with gross returns, taking it from, with all due respect, the Robinhood day trader, right? Someone is trading on the other side of every trade. And to think that Wellington and Bailey Gifford and HarborVest are not at a competitive advantage to retail investors, people doing this on their own, smaller active management shops. And then you combine that relative talent with what I would call reasonable costs, negotiated because of our size and scale, you quickly see how you end up in the right side of the distribution of zero-sum gain. And so of those, say, 30 active managers you work with, what's the range of asset size that in the products that you're partnered with them? Yeah, so the range of asset size are anywhere from a boutique all the way up to an institutional manager such as Wellington or Bailey Gifford and others that are quite large. What are the smallest in terms of asset size? Probably between, let's say, 2 and $10 billion. And then as you go over to the private side, there is this question of whether a zero-sum game is the right analogy. Yeah, on the private side, the zero-sum game may not be the right analogy. because. So I would say on the public side, just to take a step back, it's a public auction market, meaning that anyone, you, Ted, or anyone who wants to buy Apple, Google, whatever company, they have access to that. And the only thing that changes is the price. So if there's more demand, or you always hear there was more demand than supply today, which is actually never true demand and supply equal. And what changes when there is an imbalance is price goes up or down to equate demand and supply. The private side is not an open auction market. And so there are huge access advantages. So if there is oversubscription to the top GPs, 
I always use an auction analogy. If you think about an auction analogy of, let's say, wine or an auction of art, and the auction typically opens up on a weekend, like a Saturday or Sunday, but they actually have this, a lot of people don't know this, but they have this insider market where the regulars get a preview on Thursday or Friday night, walk through and actually get first access to the collection. And then it opens up to the public. Well, on the private side, it is not an auction market where you, anyone can buy Google or Apple at the bid-ask spread. It's oversubscribed. And so if the founders are going to the top GPs, because that's good for the founder, obviously, Ted, if you and I created some new entity that we were very excited about, and we felt we could get with one of the top GPs, that's what we would start with. If they pass on our idea, we would go to the next set of GPs and all the way down. And so there is a selection bias, both at the founder level and then both at the sourcing level. And so it is not necessarily a democratized auction market. The serial correlation, and certainly in venture capital and the top venture capitalists, we hear about that all the time. What have you found about that in large-scale private equity? So definitely in the venture space, as you're pointing out, on the primary side, on the traditional LBO side, there's been episodic where you see the correlations there of persistence, and then other time series where you see it break down. But again, I think it's hard because what you're looking at is the full database. You're not able to say, let me just hold constant for these 100 GPs. And is there persistence in these 100 GPs? Most of the studies say in LBO or in VC, what type of quartile regime switching do you have from first, second, third, fourth quartile, as opposed to just at the manager level? And at the individual manager level, we do see persistence. You know, one of the things we hadn't touched on that's always been so powerful is Vanguard's cooperative model, Vanguard's business structure. would love to hear how you've seen that impact the business over these two decades. Yeah. So for those who may not know me, I'll just explain it real quickly. There's many ways to align an organization. You could be a private company, right? You could be a private entity where the partners and the insiders own it at the private structure. We're talking about private equity here. So you would be a private structure. You could be public when you do an IPO and now you're owned by your public. Vanguard is a mutual organization. Most people may know of mutual insurance companies where you're owned by the policyholders. Vanguard started and we remain a mutual ownership structure, which means we're owned by our asset owners. So if you, Ted, have an investment, let's say, in the S Vanguard S&P 500, you are technically my boss. So hopefully I'm doing a good job on the call today. You are an owner of Vanguard. And what I think it really does is it aligns incentives. If you are a private entity, you could have multiple incentives. I want to do good by my private investors, and I may put my clients in order to maximize ROI for my investors, would I be taking a little more slice of the apple from my clients? Same thing in the public, right? Like if you're a public company, you're trying to increase shareholder value. Where does that shareholder value come from? Probably comes from the clients. And so it is that paradox of trying to have multiple incentives happening at the same time 
of keeping many different cohorts happy, Vanguard really has one incentive structure. We are owned by our asset owners and we need to do well by them. We have no public shareholders that are not the asset owners and we have no private investors. So everything we do, our incentives are 100% aligned with client outcomes and that way the client comes first. I know that's a saying in the industry, clients come first, clients come first, client outcomes, but when the incentives are myopic to your owners and your asset owners, I think it really aligns incentives and trust with who are actually your asset owners. It's easy to see today, given Vanguard's scale, how that flywheel has been incredibly powerful over the years. I'm kind of curious along the way when it wasn't so obvious, and Vanguard was big when you joined, but nothing like it is today. When you're partnering with an asset manager, you look for their incentives to be aligned, as you said, in private equity with performance. How has it been that the team at Vanguard, and so many people like you have been there for so long, are incented in such a way where, yes, it's great that the economic model from the owner's perspective, but it's less clear how you could look as an owner and say, oh, I know that Fran is super motivated to do really well because I'm the one who's getting all the economics at the day, not him. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Ben. I think it still goes back to how do you derive client outcomes, not to keep going back to the free sushi example, but we want to pay for talent and we do pay for talent. And so if we need to, let's say, hire a high yield tax exempt credit analyst, that's not an area where we want to be on the cheap. And so we do believe that there is a premium for talent. We absolutely look at all the benchmarks for our employees and we believe that our benchmarks are to our peer benchmarks in the industry, in the asset management world, in the investment management world. And we have pretty low turnover, which would make the idea that we are treating our employees and the talent extremely well, because if we actually had a big gap relative to our benchmark peers, you would see potentially people walking out the door. So I think it gets back to this idea of this low cost And what we really want to be is high outcome. And we know that high outcomes come from paying for talent, making sure we have the right talent, whether it be internal talent, or as I mentioned, HarborVest was not the lowest cost access fund that we looked at. And so we are always going to take outcomes over trying to be penny wise, dollar foolish. Fran, so much of what you're saying is going to resonate with the people listening as we're all participates in the active management world. I'm kind of curious as you sit there at Vanguard, everyone outside of Vanguard is used to or unfortunately gotten accustomed to the scrutiny of active management, particularly in the public markets. How do you approach the people you're talking to when so much of the Vanguard growth story on the index fund side is not the opposite of what you're saying, but it is this like, yeah, but you can't know if you're going to outperform and we know we were paying higher fees. Yeah, I think if we keep leaning on the math of zero-sum game that I went through in the past is that let's hypothetically say you you don't have to get the top decile manager. If you're able to source through due diligence, let's say the 60th to 80th percentile, I'm not saying that's easy, but if you have a brand, a scale, a manager oversight program at Vanguard, we have been able to source active management in that 60th to 80th percentile. 
and then, and let's get away from low cost, but we're able to deliver the cost, not at a million dollar mandate, but a billion dollar mandate because we're pooling our investors. All of a sudden we're getting institutional pricing with world-class talent. So the case for indexing is probably also the other thing that's most missed on the case for indexing is if you do not believe you can source higher active management talent and or the costs are above the talent. And that makes indexing a great option for the majority of people. But if you're actually at Vanguard or you actually believe you have access and due diligence to bring world-class active talent with a fee at a billion dollar mandate instead of a million dollar mandate, it really stacks the odds of being on the right side of zero sum game. And our history has shown where we rank relative to not only our peers in the active, but also whether we outperform a passive friction-free index. And there we've done quite well. Do you run into any situations where you're in, let's call it a finals presentation against someone on the index fund side at Vanguard? And it's the same company, but you're preaching, hey, we have outperformed and we are of some of the few that because of our resources and expertise can pick these great active managers, look at the results. And the person on the other side is saying, well, managers in general can't outperform, so therefore you should index. I think Vanguard has always lived in the comfort of paradox. I've always lived in the comfort of paradox. And to be quite honest, we are one of the world's largest index managers and one of the world's largest active managers. So we don't actually see the debate as polarizing as the investment community does. The investment community has definitely taken sides. They don't they do not see these as multi strategies. In fact, where you put them together, it actually can add a lot of benefit. I do a thing at the end of the day, arguing with the client or the endowment in the committee doesn't lead to success. And if there is a preference for the committee to be indexed, we believe we have the best indexing option in the marketplace and indexing will do quite well. If there is the ability to want to listen to the active story, we do believe our active story will work. The one other thing that indexing has overactive though, is this idea of patience and behavior, right? We talked a lot about behavior. If the committee is going to hire and fire our active managers, if there's not going to be patience and the understanding of alpha cyclicality, they're better off in an index fund. Because even our active funds, which have done very, very well, go three and five years out of favor, as all active managers do. So if it's this expectation of 50 basis points clocked every year, and that's what the expectation of the committee is, we would prefer they be in an index fund. If they understand they may underperform three, 400 basis points over a three-year period and reinvest into that, then they might have a little more opportunity because there's this, I call it active alpha, like did the active managers do well, but then there's client alpha and the two of them have to align and where there's lack of patience or lack of understanding of how cyclical alpha is, maybe they're better off in an index fund. That was fascinating. Fran, I want to ask you one more question before we do a couple of closing questions. And that's this, this constant issue that you hear about with growth of indexing and the implication on markets. And I'm curious to have your view, the house view of where index funds can and will go in the future. 
Yeah, it's been an amazing, amazing run that I think some people may not even do the math, but indexing, when I joined Vanguard, as I mentioned in 1997, indexing was under 10% of mutual fund assets, and now it's over 50% of mutual fund assets on the equity side. So just an incredible, let's say, 22-year growth. A couple of context items. When people say that indexing is 50%, of U.S. mutual funds. That's mutual fund 40 act. There's a lot that does not get counted in that. So let's take a large endowment that is doing separately managed accounts. So there's a lot of the world that is not in 40 act fund structure. So that 50% is going to be certainly diluted from that. But whatever it is, let's say the growth has been pretty extraordinary. The idea that indexing, though, could be moving markets or is too big, I think also, it's amazing to me that how lack of an understanding it is, kind of getting back to zero-sum game. Indexing does not set price. So indexing is a mimicking strategy of active managers. So think about that. Like, if you and I, Ted, are two active managers, and I decide I really, really want to make a big call on this value rotation. And I'm getting out of tech, I'm getting out of growth, I'm going into value. I need to find a counterparty. You're going to see, if we're the only two investors, you're going to see France trying to move out of tech, move out of growth, going to value. You're going to widen out what you want in price. And at the end of the day, the index matches that. So an index, I always say the index is a 4 p.m. strategy. That's when markets close, right? Not in reality. We're tracking all the day. But an index is replicating active management moves. So if you and I didn't trade that day, and we're the only two active managers, like I did not decide to sell, the market cap didn't move. So indexing is replicating the active manager's decisions. So it's unlikely that there's altering price, altering discovery that's out there. And then the last thing is you would have to see indexing get to somewhere of the magnitude of, you could put out a number there, 80, 85, 90% before it actually had some type of concern with the market. So we don't see it out there. There's been a couple of stories there, but it's been widely refuted. Fran, this is super, super fascinating. And I can't let you go without turning to a couple of closing questions. And I guess there's one we won't have to do because you already answered. But what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Yeah, one of my uh, favorite activities outside of family and work is seeing live events. So obviously, COVID has really dampened that. So big, big live sports person, also very much into concerts, music events, so that's really been a, a hobby and a pastime of mine since being a teenager. But, and obviously, COVID has really put a dent in that. But I'm watching a lot of virtual live shows. So that's kind of taken some of the burden off. What are your favorite teams and musicians or artists? Being in Philadelphia, so I follow most of the Philadelphia teams. But I also love seeing stadiums. So I've actually had the opportunity to travel and see a lot of different stadiums, both NBA, NFL, baseball. So that's also fun just to see the architecture and the, and the stadium and, and getting in with other crowds, which I really love. You know, they're all usually very, very generous and kind to see someone with a different jersey on. And concerts, I, I, I've gone from the big shows all the way down to the little. I like actually discovering new acts. So I saw Adele in one of her first performances in a small little theater 
I saw 21 Pilots at a movie theater, like had under a couple hundred people. So I kind of like emerging artists and hopefully they kind of turn out to be big. It's kind of like a venture capital musician type hobby. What's your most important daily habit? Definitely exercising, whether it be weightlifting or hiking or getting outdoors. So try not to let a day go by without doing that. I was very fortunate to have a a small little home gym before COVID because I understand that a lot of people are having a hard time with their gyms closed and then trying to get equipment. So I've been very fortunate to be at least uh, have that in the house before we started. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is maybe individuals who lack kindness. You see it all the time, especially in this world of social media, quick to not be a kind person, especially I would say so when there's a sense of maybe entitlement or treating people that maybe you don't feel up to your speed any less kind. So I really have very low tolerance for that. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? They've taught me so much, but I would say if the one thing they did teach me, it's how to just be a good human and be a good parent. My brother and I, I was one of two, both, they always stressed education and, and just being a good person. And we've both done quite well. And then that's allowed me to hopefully be a good parent. I have five kids of my own. They're doing equally as well. So outside of your work, I think the legacy you leave in your children are most important. And so I try really, really hard to be present for them. That's great. All right, Fran, one more before we give a few extra bonus ones for the premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Yeah, I really wish that I learned earlier that the market or the stock or the asset class didn't really care what my intrinsic value was. All the research that my team and I may have done to say that this is overvalued or undervalued, the market never seemed to really care about that, Ted. The market's going to do what it's going to do. And I'm just one data point and data and quant can give you a lot of information. But at the end of the day, it's a behavioral emotion and behavior and supply and demand really can drive the capital markets beyond what intrinsic value is. Fran, this has been really, really eye-opening. Thanks so much for taking the time. Ted, thank you. I've been a huge fan of yours. I listen every week to the show and just a great pleasure to be on. All right. I'm just going to lob a few more your way. I can't really let you go quite yet. So what's your favorite book? Favorite book is Fooled by Randomness by Caleb. What advice do you give early career professionals? Yeah, I give early career professionals to really be a student of history. The capital market is rich with history. It does seem like a lot of the events of the markets repeat through time. And so really being a historian to all the events that have happened before and really dive in deep the history of the markets and the capital market formation. Great. All right, Fran, last one. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I would say uh, the biggest mistake is I'd start off by saying I've made a lot of mistakes and I've always kind of believed that if I was not making mistakes, I wasn't trying hard enough. I wasn't experimenting enough. I wasn't pushing boundaries enough. So I've made a lot of mistakes. But when the word biggest comes into the question, Ted, I think my risk manager in me, I've been fortunate not to have any, what I would call mistakes that would live with me for three, five, seven years. They have not been enduring mistakes that I could not live with. I'm going to try to keep it that way. 
So I'm going to try to avoid the big life-altering mistakes, but make a lot of mistakes along the way because I actually think that's where I've learned the most. Fran, it's been great. Thanks so much again for taking the time. Thank you so much, Ted. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.